Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Michael, welcome to The Brave Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you because you represent a really important voice in the Southeast Asia startup ecosystem as a VC, as an operator, and as a guide for so many startups. So I'm really excited to share your journey with everyone else. So for those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself professionally? Ooh, um, I would introduce myself as a typical operator turned VC. But the journey has been a bit, I'd say, special and adventurous. So I am Dutch, born and raised. My parents are from the Dutch Caribbean, a small island called Aruba. In my youth, I was always intrigued and involved in technology. So when I was, I think it was seven or eight, I got my first computer, which I took apart, put it back together again. And so for you, you, you young kids, you won't know, but I had a, a MSX, which is like an old computer. And I learned how to code assembly at a relatively young age. So I went, I went through university, getting a corporate job at ING, which was fun, but I knew that I wasn't made for corporate life. And I wanted to um, build something on my own. So fortunate enough, I had a good friend, it was like a neighborhood friend, and he said, I'm going to build a new company, and do you want to join? And he had an idea of this grand vision of building this e-commerce company, I just built um, an e-commerce department for the company I left. And I said, don't, don't build e-commerce, don't do it. It's, it's, it and I'm talking about 19, 1999, 2000, so early days. And uh, I said, oh, no, this makes no sense. You should do a IT consultancy company. So we did, and um, we learned early days that uh, people had issues outsourcing their IT. So we built a data center, and eventually that data center got acquired. So I was fortunate enough to make a small amount of money and uh, and decided to um, uh, to just do something else, venture into a new industry. So I became an advisor for um, uh, for the Dutch government as a vice chairman for the Economic Development Board, which was an amazing journey. I did it about four years and learned so much. Learned about politics, which I also didn't like, and decided you know after that 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 I should go back to investing. And I ended up through a weird journey, doing my own investments first trying to set up a small fund in Holland. And I ended up going to Harvard for a uh, executive course. And one of my classmates introduced me to uh, Vinnie and Jeff, who were just Golden Gate Ventures in Singapore. I bought a trip to Singapore and had a conversation about the ecosystem and, and what, what happened and what they're looking for. And I, I stayed, never left. So it's been here since eight years. Amazing. What a journey and the classic, like you said, operator turned VC. So I think the first question, of course, is that when you went off to Harvard, you went off to do it in quite something called uh, you know, strategic financial analysis for business evaluation. That was all the way back then. So what was triggering your move to do that training, retraining for yourself and that eventual like transition, both geography and, and career? I was always intrigued by... Um, so our, our, our startup was not venture-backed. So we, we were able to generate revenue pretty fast and become profitable after the first year. 
So we decided in our in our growth trajectory, we didn't need any venture venture capital. But as you sold the company and a lot of founders said, hey, Mike, do you want to like invest in my company or do you want to become a board member or advisor? Because we'd love sort of the help and the expertise. And really wanted to get a better grip of how do investments actually work? Because I've, I've been an operator for so long. I did politics, but I never sort of made proper investments. So one of my friends in, um, in, in Rotterdam, he said, dude, I just did a course at Harvard and it was amazing. And I just... You get business cases and the the folks in your class. It's really valuable. And I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense. So I looked up anything that was related to investments. And and that's how I sort of literally decided to to make it move. And then I guess the second thing was, why why didn't I do this in the Netherlands or Europe? I just felt having a network in a different geography would be helpful. So I said Harvard would kind of open up a new network for me. And that's that's actually what I did. Yeah, it definitely did because it led to your meeting with Jeff and you changing geographies. So I think, what was it like meeting Jeff and hearing that crazy idea to set up Golden Key Ventures? What was it like? Were you like, eh? Or you're like, yeah, maybe. Or like, definitely, yeah. It was it was inspiring. So I I met Jeff and Vinny in 2013. So we had dinner at a at a friend's place, and um, yeah. They were telling their own journey, and Vinny spoke about why he moved to Singapore. Jeff told me about his previous work, like being in private equity, and and then deciding to um, to really focus on early stage startups. And I was like, why would you build a fund in Singapore? I mean, why not anywhere else? And they were talking about the founders that they that they'd invested in, and you know the likes of Vinod at Money Smart and, and Suray at Carousel. I was like, this is intriguing. It's it's really a very, very young ecosystem. And I think there's there's a bit of kind of proving themselves and you're saying, you know, we can do this and we can build we can build this firm and we can build this legacy. And that got me inspired. I I love that story and I felt these guys are onto something really good. And yeah, I just want to see if I can be part of that journey. Amazing. What well, well, was that conversations held over? I mean, it was probably in person, not like Zoom these days. Yeah, uh, yeah. Paint, paint the picture of what it was like. Because, you know, some level they were pitching you, you were thinking about it as well. But where was this conversation? Yeah, uh, it's funny. It wasn't, it wasn't so much. So I wasn't pitching them and they weren't really pitching me. I think we just had a conversation which the three of us was, there's, there's something here. And there's something in this also in this sort of dynamic between us as persons I guess me looking for making the next step, them kind of making all the investments trying to build something. So it was more around, hey, what can we do? Can I be helpful with getting investors on board? Can I, you know, I can go back to Europe and, and talk to my network of investors and see who I can bring on board. So it was, it was not so much about them pitching me. It, I guess it was more about us just having a conversation about what was happening in this in this ecosystem. And, and that's something that it sparked something in me. And you know, like, I'm, I'm excited about this. Amazing. Was this at a restaurant <laughs> or a cafeteria? No, we, we had a... Um, so I met him multiple times. So they were still at the hub in Somerset in Singapore. So a co-working space. So I met them there and then we had dinner at a friend's place. So just in someone's home and it's very easy going. So we had sort of time to chat and had some drinks as well. Yeah, it was just, just at a friend's place and just, just having, having food. That was basically it. You know what? We probably were at the same place because I was the first few members of the Impact Hub Singapore. So I was also working there. Uh, and I I remember seeing you drifting a few times in and out. 
But I was always primarily working on the weekends out of there and mm-hmm. the evenings. So we didn't really overlap. And of course, you know, good friends with Grayside and everything. So it's interesting to see everybody kind of like sprout out from there, from Jungle to Golden Gate <laughs> to Grain to, you know, so many other folks, Glints as well. Here you are in the early days and you're like just moved to Southeast Asia and you decided to commit as a venture partner. You know, what was it like? Because, you know, those were the early days, right? JFDI was still around as well. So there was like two places to hang out at a time, I remember. Like there was like JFDI drinks and in back up Singapore as the other place to hang out. Yeah. So what was it like from your perspective? Not just like learning the ecosystem from a geographic perspective, but also helping build the ecosystem from a young perspective as well. I guess... My, my first my first few months were, it felt tough because I had imposter syndrome. I really felt like I'm this guy from the Netherlands. Yeah, I might have built a company, but but who, who am I to sort of talk to founders in, in Indonesia and, <laughs> and tell them how to build their company? So I, I, I tried to sort of take a step back and learn as much as I could in, the, in those first few months. This is so funny. I still remember, and then Vinny said, you know what you should do? You should go to a conference and be a panelist or a speaker because that is 100% going to get you more exposure as a, as a, as a, as a VC and in, our, in our firm. And what it will do is you get a better grasp of what's happening in the ecosystem. So, I, of course, I was talking to like a bunch of founders, but I always felt like I'm, I'm imposing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sort of an outsider, an outsider looking in. So I had my first... I think it was 2014, where it was an Echelon conference in Jakarta. So my first trip to Jakarta ever. And um, yeah, I just, I just got there and I, was, I still at the conference, I felt so out of place. But it was, it ended, it was good. So, you know, I, I, I was sitting on a panel. I guess everyone was like curious, like, who is this guy? Where is he coming from? Why did Golden Gate Ventures hire this dude? Um, and, and why is he here? But I had a good time and I immediately was able to make some friend in the ecosystem. And that, that helped me kind of ease in and, and sort of gain more confidence. So that, that was my first few months, like really feeling I'm, I'm 100% imposing on this ecosystem. And I'm, I just really have to be cautious and careful about how I position myself. But then early on, I was fortunate enough to help a few of our portfolio founders, whether it was fundraising or kind of helping them with some guidance in, in terms of, hey, I can help get your connections with folks in Europe, if you need, or with folks in the US, or I have network here of some investors that, that might be helpful. So that helped me, I guess, one, get confidence and also sort of build trust between me and, and partners within the ecosystem. And I, I try to learn as much as I can and, you know, go out for drinks, as you mentioned, go to JFDI and hang out at the hub for uh, the impact hub for coffee. Yeah, just making sure I was, I was talking to the portfolio like enough uh, time about their fundraising ideas and, and see where I could be helpful. But th- those were my first months and it was, it was really about learning and getting to know the ecosystem. I did have a, um, a culture shock when I, when I got to Jakarta the first time. I was like, whoa, this is going to be the next big thing. I was like, whoa, I have, to, <laughs> I have to kind of see this through. It felt so messy. It felt like things were happening all over the place. There was no proper structure. Yeah, it really felt like, man, this is, there's a lot of work to be done for this to become like what it is now. You know what I I miss? I think what I miss about those days, it was that early, everyone was so hungry to build something and prove themselves. You know, every VC that I met was hungry. Every founder was hungry. 
everything that everyone that was doing something in this space, they were all hungry. And that dynamic is, it was amazing. I loved it. I still remember in those early days, I was also working off the hub. None of us dared to call ourselves founders because it was a very weird phrase, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago to call ourselves a founder because, you know, everybody you work with was kind of a weirdo. Like, we'll look at you as weird if you call yourself a founder. So everyone was just walking around calling themselves CEO or president, <laughs> you know, in those early days, right? It's interesting to see that now being a founder is still uncool, but definitely more cool with some folks. That's been an interesting shift. So what else have you seen shift, I think, since then, you know, over the past eight years in the Singapore and Southeast Asia ecosystem? I mean, less about the macro trends because we can pull up a market research report. But, you know, personally, in terms of the culture, the people you're seeing, how do you personally think about it? I guess the word that comes to mind is collaboration. I really found that early on, there was a lot of collaboration between I would say even between investors, between VCs, between angel investors, between founders, you know, helping each other out. It was really, you know, I don't want to overuse the word, but it was really kind of a community of folks that were, yeah, again, were trying to prove something. I'm guessing throughout that journey, that community always stayed. The community never, to me, that's something that never changed. Yeah, I can still, I can still pick up the phone and call any VC and have a, have a chit chat about, hey, how do you guys think about this? How do you guys think about that? That door is always open. The early founders that I still have a conversation with about anything, could be about kids, could be about life, could be about their next venture. So I love it that sort of that openness and that community still exists. Um, and it's, it's, a really, it's a really tight-knit community. So I think that's, that's one thing that I, that I just noticed over the, over the years. The other thing that, that has always surprised me in, the, in a way, I guess, is... I guess Southeast Asia always felt like this is our home turf, as in the investors that, that, that are from here, that, that kind of help build what the ecosystem is right now. It's, it, this is so funny. I'm a foreigner myself. So I was initially surprised seeing foreign investors come in and, like, and being excited. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Because the, the moment you're part of the, um, I would almost say in crowd, you don't see the outside anymore. You, you're not looking from the outside in. You're always kind of in the inside. And then I had folks from... San Francisco or from Berlin say, hey, Mike, this is awesome what you guys are building and there's so much stuff happening. I was like, no, it's okay. You know, we're just building stuff. But it's literally someone from the outside seeing all this, this companies funding, new founders building a business, people leaving, I don't know, Gojek and Grab and, and starting their own business. And for them, looking at seeing it from the outside, so they get even more excited than I was. And I was already excited. That's the thing that, that really, it surprised me initially. Yeah, I get it now because we have, of course, we have like companies raising a lot of capital. But initially, I was like, "Wow, this this people actually value what we're building here." Um, like all of us, what 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 we're trying to do, people are actually valuing this. So that that was unexpected. So early on, I guess the other thing was, as people talked about Southeast Asia as sort of this entire sort of union, I've always experienced it as. No, it's, it's like literally separate countries. <laughs> yeah, they're very close in terms of flight time, but they're still separate countries. For me, learning that dynamic, I'll, I'll tell you this story. So Jeff always told me, Mike, Vietnam is an entirely different beast than Indonesia and than the Philippines. And you have to understand, even within Vietnam, the difference between Hanoi and, and Ho Chi Minh City. And I always felt like, you know, it's it's like Europe, you know. So it's yeah, okay. There are different countries, but the 
dynamic cannot be so different. And then my first trip to Hanoi, I was like, whoa, this is, this is a cool place because it's pretty relaxed. Like the old city kind of feels like Paris a little bit, of course, because of the, the French influence. I was like, oh, this is actually a cool place. You know, why, why is everybody talking about sort of the, the hustle and bustle? This is like pretty easygoing and the finance industry is, is pretty, you know, kind of put together. Then we took a flight to, uh, to Ho Chi Minh City. And I was like, whoa, this, <laughs> it is so different. And kind of learning this sort of, you know, step by step, getting input from friends, getting my own experience. I'm guessing that is so unique. That is so unique to this region. I guess that is the biggest learning and that's the biggest excitement I've seen just over the past years is kind of learning all those differences and learning how to navigate it as an investor as well. Understanding that a, a founder from Vietnam does fundraising differently than a founder from Malaysia or than a founder from Indonesia. Like even those small nuances is, is kind of important within our job and kind of learning that and you don't read it in the papers, you don't read it on TechCrunch, but that's 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 the nuance of our um, of our business and I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I love both threads, which is that I think it's been nice to get the external validation from the world and everyone's starting to kind of come in because they see that shininess of Southeast Asia. But from the inside, Singapore is not Southeast Asia. <laughs> Their first flight in is into Singapore and they're like, off at Marina Bay Sands at the Infinity Pool, and they're like, "Oh, Southeast Asia is great." And then, and then they go to all these different places. Like, "Whoa, very different, right? Different countries." That's always something. I always end up warning everybody, like you said. And I think what's interesting as well is we've seen so much change because you know I think we've seen like you know layers stack on each other. So you know the first wave being just like just getting high speed internet in, <laughs> and then all the various services that build on top of each other, right? From e-commerce to logistics, to fulfillment, to aggregators. I'm so curious, Michael, like what parts of the ecosystem have you always been passionate about theme-wise? Less about, you know, what's hard or not hard, but what kind of businesses or startups kind of like say like, oh, this is something I, I understand or something that I enjoy kind of like working alongside? That's a good question. It's been less about a certain sector or vertical, although I do have a natural interest for payments. So within fintech, I do enjoy the complexity of payment structures, specifically cross-border. So I've always been, been interested and intrigued about it. And I'm actually quite bullish to see the development when it comes to banks really working with the sort of the payment startups in terms of you know, open banking APIs, sort of those platforms. I, I'm keen to see that happen over the next few years. So that, that is a thing of, of interest. But I've always been more someone that, that is appreciative of how founders operate, not specific about, oh yeah, I, I like healthcare or I, I like payments or I like logistics. It's, for me, it's always been around how do founders operate? What I've always appreciated here is there's different types and layers of founders. So I'll give you an example. If, if I look at the Carousel founding team, so from the outset, you, you see early days, young guys coming out of university, and they are the type of founder that they are, they are so heads down on in their business and always focus on improving the product, taking feedback, giving their team the ability to grow and, and sort of excel. And that is unique for a group that is sort of young doing this for the first time. You know, they've, they haven't built a billion dollar company before. So this is kind of their first time. And seeing them grow into that role, is that, that's phenomenal. 
And then there's then there's other types of founders that are more I'd almost say that they're more like founder founder. They 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 almost they, they have the ability to sort of position themselves. So I take Aaron Tan as an example, where he when you talk to him, he talks and thinks like a founder, fast on his feet, understanding how to build partnerships, understands how to fundraise, understands how to talk to investors. And I like those different dynamics between those types of founders, like seeing the very very young folks, and you you'll see them become mature almost in that journey, but also seeing the founders that are sort of, you know, founder from day one and, and they, they're able to sort of have that aura around them. I think that gets me more excited and, and seeing those journeys and whatever happens, you can always say, hey, we, we, we met seven years ago and I still remember you being nervous about raising your Series A. You can talk through it and, and now you're, if you've raised like a massive amount of money and you have like a, over 100 people that are working for you, and that journey, I think that excites me more than, than anything else. I'm less about sort of just honing or owning or going deep into an industry. I'm more about sort of that founder journey because also in, in my role, I tend to be more involved when it comes to fundraising and, and sort of telling that founder story. So that's, that's what, what gets excited typically. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, I still remember when I raised my Series A and I was like, oh my God, what's going on? And, you know, everything was nicer, everything was sweeter and then you just keep going from there as well. So I guess the question I have for you is just, you know, one interesting thing I do think about and reflect about is just like every founder can learn something if you put in a couple million dollars in them because now they get to hire the team, they get to free up, they get maybe to hire a coach, they have a little bit more free time. So there's this dynamic where, you know, to some extent, the funding helps give the space for that professional development to go to the next level. And what's interesting is that I remember as a founder seeing that some of my peers managed to make that leap to the next stage and some people were not. And now that I'm on the other side of the table, I think you understand this as an operator turned VC, is you kind of have this judgment call to be like, this person, if we invest, will be able to make it to the next stage. And conversely, some people may find it more difficult to go to the next stage. So what would you say are kind of like the differences in the character or attributes that help someone be able to accelerate their learning with the acceleration of the business and capital versus someone who's going to struggle more along that process? That's a very good question. I guess the biggest thing that makes a difference is how convinced someone is in, in building their business. It, you might say like, that's odd because if you start a company, you're convinced about what you're building. It's not always the case. We still meet founders who you kind of give those critical questions and they, and they, they don't answer them directly or they, they try to avoid certain answers. If it's insecurity or if you don't know yet, that's fine. But you, you need to have that ultimate conviction that you and your team are the ones to do this. And, and with that also comes understanding your shortcomings as well. So for me, when, when we have founder conversations, I try to look for this, like, are, are, they, are they extremely convinced about their business and what they're building? But are they also aware enough of their own shortcomings and where they need to either adapt or or find people to come in to kind of you know help help with their own shortcomings? So I try to kind of look for that balance. And when that's there and it's clear, that's when I think, oh yeah, you are absolutely ready to get to the next stage. We always celebrate funding rounds, um, and I get it. You know, it's 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 part of our industry, and it, this is what we do. But literally, the funding round is like is like a KPI. And then you've hit that KPI, but you have like 10 more KPIs to fulfill. 
So, and funding is like one of them. <laughs> I will, I'm always concerned when it becomes too big of an event itself. I want the rest to be bigger, a bigger event as what comes next into expanding and building your team, like expanding your product, better understanding of your customers. How can you serve them better? What are you building towards? I think those answers need, need kind of more, those questions need more answering than over-celebrating the, the funding. So founders that get excited about the work they need to do after getting the funding, I think, I think those are the ones that, that, are, that are unique in this business. And they just tend to be more focused on just getting the job done, doing the right thing, hiring the right people. And they talk about it. So they tend to talk about those next steps just more intensely and say, hey, the moment the funding comes in, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because I think this will help grow this part of our business. And, and sort of that conviction and that understanding of, of what you're building, I think that is always key when these funding runs happen. Wow, I really like that. I wish we celebrated uh, growing 2x or hiring a key executive. Uh, those are probably more important and fundamental to the business than uh, the funding around. I totally get it. I remember everyone celebrating me on raising money and I was just thinking to myself, oh no, I have so much more commitments that I just made, <laughs> you know, in terms of the growth trajectory, right? And that's a tough position. I remember just kind of like going through that process because of the outside in dynamic expectations versus, you know, the inside out reality. So let's talk a little bit still about the intrinsic motivation because I think what you're saying is that what you notice is that those who do really well are those who really care about the problem, really feel like they have that conviction in the team. And I think one thing I've started to notice, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it feels like there's a lot of people chasing problems they don't love, but they think will make good commercial sense. And that's a really tough position for me because I'm always like, okay, this is a pretty decent idea. You're a really strong person and the founder. I'm just not sure why you for this problem. Do you have any advice for them? Because I think a lot of them, obviously, they're busy projecting, but a lot of people, obviously, how, how would someone know this is something I fundamentally don't love and I'm just not interested in, I should just like forget it, versus I do love this problem, but I'm just having a temporary bout of fear and inconfidence. Versus, I don't love the problem that much, but if I make money in this and I'm successful, I'm going to start loving this problem and solution anyway. So what advice would you give to them? I mean, so I, I would always say, if you, if you start at the end, if you try to look at yourself seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years out, and would you still be working on this problem if you're given the chance? If the answer is, no, I want to get out of this as soon as I can, as an example, I wouldn't raise capital because because the thing is you're in this for long-term commitments. The moment you make big hires or the moment you raise capital, those are more commitments that, that, you're, that you're going into. And if you're not loving this enough, if you don't see yourself doing this longer term, it's just going to cause problems. And apart from you having the, the passion to make the product better, to service your customers better, to build an amazing team, that takes a lot of effort and that I just don't see how you can put in all this effort without actually being overly in love with what you're building. So for me, it's always, it's always about that combination. If you think that you're building something to almost kind of no passion, no love for it, it's almost like a quick flip, then make sure that that's it and that you're, you're hyper-focused to just doing that and just don't, don't you know, cut all the bullshit around it. 
effectively, if you want to build a longer term business, yeah, there has to be a form of passion for it. You, 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 can, you can do it off the cuff and say, you know what, um, I'll just try this out. It's a problem I don't really care about, but we'll see what happens. That doesn't make great companies. Great companies make people that are dedicated to solving this issue and, and, and getting it done and making it bigger and convincing. And here's the thing. You have to convince others that you believe in this because you start on your own and then you get your, your first few hires. So you have to convince your hires that they... And once you've convinced them to become part of your team, you have to convince them to stay. Because getting them in is one. Having them to stay is something else. Uh, it's like another different ballgame. And then you are, have, have to convince investors if you're raising capital and you have to convince partners and, and customers. You can't do it properly if you don't have a passion for the product itself. That is crucially important to me. If you feel that you're solving something that you don't genuinely care about, or like, like really passionately care about, I think you should just rethink why you're doing this and find an answer to that question. That was actually really powerful because I think what you are fundamentally saying is there's no harm, no shame in having those different dynamics between choice A, choice B, choice C, but staying true to it and actually aligning your team, your funding sources to build out that in that approach is really key. So that's really important. So, um, you know, I'd love to ask you, you know, I'm starting to kind of wrap up here, but can you tell us about a time where you have been brave, you know, something that you had overcome or a challenge that you overcame? I guess two moments have been brave and pivotal as well. So the first one was actually telling the family I'm moving to Singapore. So typically when, when folks, especially when you move to Singapore, you, you basically, you move into a job. So you, you, you work for a big bank, you know, Everything is kind of sorted and settled and you kind of move and that's it. When I moved to Singapore, I had no certainty where my job was going. Golden Gate Ventures was at the time a very young firm. I think they existed. Our first fund was, was we were two years in, so it was like super early days. The ecosystem was young. I mean, we had no idea if this was actually going to be become a big ecosystem. So buying that plane ticket and saying, guys, this is it. We're going to give it a we're going to give it a go and see what happens. It, for me, it felt brave because our daughter was just born. Yeah, I was, I was telling the family, have faith in me and, and let's, see, let's see what happens. That was a big one for me. I guess the second one is, and because moving to Singapore has become such a big part of my life. The second thing would be writing my first article on Medium. The reason I'm saying this is I've been, I've been writing more as of late and, and most of them are, are yeah, personal stories. But writing that first very personal story, sharing my views, sharing my insecurities, sharing where what I've gone through. It felt like sort of putting pen to paper. It felt like a brave moment because it put me into a different direction as a person. So I think those two would be my brave, brave moments. So you know, let's talk more about your writing and why is it scary for you personally? And I'll, I'll, I'll try to summarize it because it, that has been a long journey. I used the writing to get to know myself better. So initially the writing was just for me. So just got my notebook, wrote down my thoughts, and it was mainly to understand my thoughts better and understand my actions better. And as I was, I was talking about the stuff that I wrote to just with, with friends, and some would say, oh man, I'm going through the exact same thing, or I had the exact same experience, or I never wrote this down, but it's helping me to have a conversation with you about it. And I was like, oh, maybe if I, 
if I shared it with more folks, actually more people would sort of empathize or have like, hey, this is a light bulb moment. This, this is really helpful. So that journey was, in that sense, a big step because, because the moment you write about your personal journey, you become vulnerable. People might like it. People might not like it. So it's, it is a bit insecurity to kind of hit the send button and or the submit button and have it out there because once it's out there, it's out there and people can judge and have an opinion about it. So that, that brings insecurity. But it, I also felt very comfortable because I assumed that my journey potentially could help others define their own journey and, and help them define or at least almost help them face their own insecurities. So that, that's kind of where writing uh, for me came in. You know, we've seen writing take on different forms. There's obviously the thought leadership piece, which is very like, these are the big three big themes coming up. And then there's also the more technical, which is really about founder advice and so, so forth. And then third, of course, is the inside out stories, the ones about the conversations, the personal self-talk dynamic. One interesting thing is that, I wonder how you think about this, but as VCs, you know, we tend to get a lot of inbound questions about all three levels. And it's kind of confusing to me because I didn't change as a person at all from point A to point B. So I'm not sure, maybe it's the imposter syndrome, but I feel like maybe I can talk about the big themes. I can talk about the technical stuff. But inside out stuff is like, you know, my story is not very different from everybody else. So I'm just kind of curious how you think about people looking at VCs as inspiration or gurus or as role models. So how do you feel about that and process that? Oh man, that, that, is, that is a very good question. I spoke at a conference and I think it was in San Francisco. I was a little bit upset because, because I basically said I would prefer that people still see us as like normal human beings. I said it in a funny context because it was the industry, as us as VCs, we, we were really celebrating ourselves. But I'm like, yeah, we're still humans and we're, we still have our insecurities and we still go to the restroom like anyone else. We're not superhumans. But there's one thing, though. The fact that we get to speak to hundreds of founders year in, year out for the past 10 years, it gives you a lot of insight. As a VC, if you're open to learning and if you're open to getting to understand the macro stuff, because you've seen 60 companies in the payment space, you've seen 40 companies doing logistics, you've seen 20 companies doing agriculture. That gives you a certain insight and it gives you a certain opinion and it gives you certain data that others tend not to see. And that puts us into a very unique position. And I guess that's what people are looking for help and support and guidance. If you're a board member or if you're, if you're involved in a founder's journey, and you're not doing it once, you're doing it like 60 times. That also gives you insights. It gives you insights about personalities. It gives you insight about how people grow from being this really young, insecure founder to someone running a billion dollar company. And seeing that journey really close from the outside in is, is really valuable. So I, so I get it. So we have a unique position, but I always say it's a position of trust. People trust us. I say, almost say this. It's our obligation as VCs that we are in such a unique position that we share this position with others and, and that we try to help others bring into a better position because we have all this information and because we have all these insights. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That was actually really powerful and uh, a good reminder for both VCs and uh, founders. 
I'd love to wrap things up here by summarizing the three big themes from this conversation. I think the first, of course, was thank you so much for sharing about your personal journey from Europe to Southeast Asia and all the things you learned along the way <laughs> from you know, persuading your family. That's a good idea to giving us a small window into what it was like to hang out at the Hub Singapore with Jeff and Vinny to what you learned and have to counsel newcomers to the region about the differences between Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam and all of the differences in between. The second part I really appreciated was you giving the professional advice around how people and founders should be thinking about the problems they're tackling and how well that aligns with what they are, with why they're tackling it and being true to it from the more short term to the more like passion driven. And I really love the advice you have is none of these approaches are better or worse. It's just that you just have to be aligned about that process about lining up the commitments that you make to funding sources as well as your teammates about what the truth of your timeline is. Thirdly, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about, I think on one side, I think inside out is like writing and processing thoughts as human beings and VCs. But also outside in, I would say like the VC aura and the gap between that and the actual human at the core of it, who's like you said, still goes to the toilet. <laughs> and so thank you so much for sharing about how it's scary, but also uh, the rest... I think the position of trust that a VC can eventually build out if they're thoughtful and mindful about what they actually bring as an observer and as a participant. Yeah. So thank you so much, Michael, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you being so brave and sharing about all the scary moments. Thanks again for having me, Jeremy. I really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>